This podcast was recorded for the Sound Environment Show on Radio Galari. Radio Galari is a community radio station based in the Kimberley, Western Australia. For more information, go to www.galari.com. My name is Lizzie O'Shea and I'm the UWA Student Guild President. Lizzie O'Shea, you've said that Bjorn Lomborg has no place at UWA. Why is that? Um, we've come out pretty strongly saying that we don't think Bjorn Lomborg has a place at UWA, mostly just to do with his um, his reputation and his academic integrity. Um, we don't feel that he's worthy of $4 million of federal funding. We don't feel he's worthy of being an adjunct professor. And we feel that the effect of having um, Bjorn Lomborg at UWA, where UWA would be seen as pretty much the only people who will take him, um, is incredibly damaging for the university's reputation. So that's the concern that students have got. Many people, uh, in- including the uh, UWA Student Guild, have mentioned that Lomborg has been internationally criticised. What are the major criticisms about Lomborg? Um, a lot of people have criticised the um, the referencing of his work um, and the fact that it sort of um, acts like it's science, but it's sort of, um, some people say economics, some people say opinion. Um, so that's sort of the main criticism that, that people have got, is that he is putting out these statements on major issues like climate change and the, you know, the global development goals, um, when he doesn't actually have any qualifications to do so. I think he's got a PhD in game theory, um, yet he's being put up for $4 million of federal funding when we've seen the Climate Commission cut. Um, so the major concern that people have got is that his work um, is poorly referenced, it's not peer-reviewed, it's not independent, um, and it's, it's used as an example of bad science at this university. We've got lecturers who use Lomborg's um, Skeptical Environmentalist book as an example of what not to do, so um, I think that really just sums it up. It's certainly been at the, the butt of a lot of um, concern there, and I was not aware that his work had been used as examples of what kind of what not to do, but that is um, very, very interesting. Yeah, it's a bit awkward. It is a bit bit awkward. Um, Lomborg does advocate for a lot of things. Lomborg is strongly motivated to elevate people out of poverty, and he does advocate for things like funding water and sanitation projects, and earlier this month he called to an end to fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, Both of these were based on an economic cost and benefit analysis do you think that there might be some validity to Lomborg's methods? Um, I think that there is a, you know, there is a validity in assessing um, which goals we can achieve, and you know, obviously we've got finite resources. Um, I think the issue with the way that he goes about assessing it is that various um, academics in the field have said that he downplays. Um, the impacts of climate change and the role that they have in those models. So where his models come out and say climate change is not going to be an issue, we shouldn't be worrying about it. Um, The IPCC have come out with very different figures to him and their figures are peer-reviewed and their figures are, you know, scientific fact. Um, So I think that's sort of the issue there in that I don't think there's anything flawed about using cost-benefit analysis, you know, ever. Um, But I think... It's quite hard to use it in this context, and I mean, I'm not an economist. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know specifically how this method works in detail. But I think there have been issues with um, trying to quantify, you know, social issues and things like that, and trying to quantify with, you know, a dollar figure impacts of climate change when it's a lot easier to do that with short-term projects. And I think that's a lot of the criticism that we've seen is that the model itself exists to downplay the effects of climate change. And I guess any economic model is only as good as the assumptions behind it. I still yeah, think about exactly. my statistics lecturer saying rubbish in, rubbish out. So if some of your underlying assumptions are 
are contrary to what the IPCC is saying, you're probably going to get quite a different answer. Lizzie O'Shea, do you believe that the funding for this research centre is politically motivated? Um, I feel that there's pretty strong sort of messaging around that, that it's, it's a bit hard to deny that the timing of cuts to the CSIRO and cuts to the Climate Council is not really coincidence when $4 million is allocated to this. I mean, if you're going to deprioritise climate change research and science and jobs for researchers and then prioritise $4 million for this centre whose sole purpose is to develop research specifically for the government's use, I think that that, to me, certainly looks politically motivated and I don't think there... Um, you know, I don't think it's it's tricking much of the staff as well. Most people can see that it does look like it's got very specific political or ideological aims. In your opinion, where would $4 million be better spent in terms of research? I think, I think there are probably a number of ways that you could use it better. I mean, in this sphere, there are a number of pre-existing centres that already look at this kind of thing. So if they do want to look at how to meet development goals, I'm sure there are better ways to spend it than to just invest in starting something new with someone like Lomborg. But to me, it, the fact that it was going to cost, I think it was $1.5 million a year to fund the Climate Council um, or the Climate Commission, and then that was deemed to be unnecessary in this budget emergency, um, yet you'll put $4 million into this. The numbers don't really add up. Um, you could pretty much fund the Climate Council off this $4 million. So um, to me, that seems like a much better um, way to spend the money. And a lot of people do agree with you, including Tim Flannery. Uh, I understand that student representatives from the Student Guild went to a UWA Senate meeting on Monday of this week to raise their concerns about the Australian Consensus Centre and about Beyond Lomborg. What happened at that meeting? Yep, so we have three student representatives on Senate, um, one being myself, one being our postgraduate student um, association president and the general Senate rep, and we all um, raised a number of concerns to do with, with whether a risk management assessment had been done, um, if Lomborg would have any say in employing staff and bringing in the PhD students, um, if we could um, terminate the, the deal, if the deal had been signed um, and if there was a way out. So we asked a lot of um, what I thought were pretty straightforward questions that deserve sort of straightforward answers. Um, we didn't get an awful lot of um, direct responses, but the vibe was certainly that... Um, the consultation had been quite limited, so it had been with, you know, the head of the business school um, and the person who runs the Centre for Social Impact, but it didn't sound like it had gone much further than that, although it did sound like the conversations had been quite long-term. Um, and, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't happy with the risk assessment done because I think, um, by the sounds of it, I don't know how much detail they went into, but this should have probably been something that you could see coming. I mean, he's not a new figure on the scene as far as controversy goes. Um, although we were reassured that um, he would not be involved with the hiring of any staff or PhD students and that he, um, if he were to speak on issues relating to climate change, um, that would be considered outside of his sort of purview of what he should be looking at. Um, so he would be sanctioned if he made any sort of um, inflammatory comments about... Um, about climate change that didn't fit with the messaging of the university. But in saying that, I'm quite concerned that we could have this centre um, try and look at the global development goals without actually having any focus on climate change. I think the fact that he could get a, you know, get away with never saying anything about climate change um, 
is, <laughs> to be honest, almost just as bad if it means that the whole centre is never going to touch on it. I mean, it is peculiar because so many of those goals about water and food security and energy security directly link into climate change. I'm not Personally, I'm not sure how you could address one without looking at the other. Lizzie O'Shea, I have read that in 2001, British environmentalist and author Mark Linus threw a cream pie at Lomborg. Will he receive a similar reception if he comes to the University of WA sometime soon? I'm I'm not sure about the cream pies. I think that's a... um might be a little bit of an old-fashioned tactic. I think people are. <laughs> it's so 2001. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think people, I don't know if it'll be um, a sort of a rowdy protest down at the business school or if it'll be an open letter. But I think if he if he does come onto campus, I think he'll be getting a very um, very angry and perhaps frosty reception. Um Given, given the context, I mean, he's been on campus before and I don't think anyone's thought too much about it because it was sort of, you know, he's in the country, he's not going to, he's not teaching here, he's not associated with the university, he's just speaking. But um, I think if this goes ahead and neither the, uh, the Vice-Chancellor nor the government cut ties, um, I think we'll see a lot of people sort of turn their backs um, and really voice their discontent about it. Lizzie O'Shea, thank you so much for speaking to Sound Environment. No worries. Thank you for having me. Today we speak to the University of Western Australia's Vice-Chancellor, Professor Paul Johnson. Paul, thank you so much for talking to Sound Environment. My pleasure, Kat. I'm sure it's been a very busy week for you. And, um, Paul, the research areas that our country invests in says a lot about what we value as a nation. Why has the federal government prioritised spending $4 million on the Australian Consensus Centre at UWA? Um, to be honest... I can't tell you that. It's That's a question for the Australian government and how they take their decisions is, um, is uh, usually somewhat opaque. Um, how they choose to support one thing rather than another, um, I don't know. I mean, in terms of the Australia Consensus Centre, the government approached UWA in the middle of last year uh, with uh, the idea of um, supporting the establishment of the centre. I don't know if they approached other universities, and I don't know what the decision-making process was within government. This was an approach from the Department for Education. Um, no idea, um, uh, obviously, how governments determine um, what to support and, and which departments have funding to support it. It's a very good question, though, because overall, um, I think we can see that um, and certainly government support for research both in this government and in the uh, previous uh, Labour government, though it went up initially under the previous government, then it was cut back. And um, uh, that's, a, that's a, a great concern for the university sector, but I think it should be a concern for Australia overall. You know, research funding is important because it means that we can find out more about the world in which we live and... Uh, tackle some of the major challenges in the world in which we live, ultimately to get a better better lifestyle, better quality of life, better life outcomes for everyone. Yeah, I think most people appreciate the value of research into a range of fields and what it, what it brings. Uh, just something about the university's own decision-making process, who was consulted with within the university before the announcement was made to establish the Climate Consensus Centre? Sorry, excuse me, the Australian Consensus Centre. 
Yeah, can I ju- just point that that's an interesting slip of the tongue. This isn't yes. a, a centre that's focused on climate or climate change. Its focus is development, um, both global development and in particular what will follow on from the United Nations Millennium Development Goals, which were set for the period 2000 to 2015. So, you know, what the, the global development goals should be over the next 15 years. But also the development opportunities and, and goals that we have here in Australia. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk, uh, though I have to say not a lot of action, about um, the development of Australia's north, uh, both obviously in the Kimberley but, um, uh, and, and also in Northern Territory. Um, but a lot of talk and, and uh, so far I think relatively uh, little action. So we've got big opportunities in terms of development here in, in Australia, as well as some challenges. And there are obviously both some very big challenges around the world in terms of trying to bring everyone's living standard up to a, up to a, a higher and, and more reasonable level. So that's what the centre um, uh, is, um, is designed to focus on. It's those development challenges and, and how to evaluate the, the the benefits of different approaches because there are many ways in which you can approach development but not everything can be done so it's, it's trying to work out what is better uh, better value i suppose uh, in terms of but to come to your, your question about decision making in the university the university was approached by the government um uh, and then uh, we considered this approach then um um clearly this is a, a an economic center because it's really focused around how you how you look at different development possibilities and work out the, the cost effectiveness of, of different different approaches. So it logically um, resided within the business school, and um, so it was discussion with with the dean of the business school, um, one of the senior professors in the business school who directs the Centre for Social Impact, which also does not exactly cost-benefit work, but uses similar methodology. Mm. And then my understanding is that Dean discussed it with the senior management team within the business school. So that was the, the um, process that was used. Did you anticipate that that you would see this level of controversy arise after the announcement of the centre? I anticipated that there would be controversy because um, um, uh, Lomborg is, uh, Bjorn Lomborg, who is the director of the Copenhagen Consensus Centre, which has developed some of this sort of methodology for um, taking cost-benefit analysis around social development issues out to panels of economists and then uh, and out to stakeholders and so on. So following very much that same approach. Um, he, is, he is particularly well known um, for uh, a book he wrote in the early 2000s uh, called The Skeptical Environmentalist, where he was bringing some economic cost-benefit analysis to issues around climate change. Um, but uh, anything to do with climate change is, is likely to attract a lot of passion. This university has come under sustained attack from climate change denialists um, for the work of some of our uh, scientists here, and we always resolutely defend them. Uh, because there is absolute um, uh, understanding, I think, in the scientific community that, uh, and indeed I would say that absolute understanding by Bjorn Lomborg himself, that the climate is changing, is changing because of 
um, uh, the action of mankind, particularly the burning of fossil fuels, and this poses a, a profound threat to our way of life and quality of life, um, not just here in Australia but around the world. So it is something that we absolutely have to have to address. The big question is, uh, I suppose, and it's you know very much a live question as we see um, different governments take um, different approaches. Um, how much should we? How much of our current um, um, resource of our income today should we spend on both adapting to climate change and trying to mitigate or, or slow down the rate of climate change? Um, and once we've decided how much we want to spend, how should how should we allocate that activity? The, these are these are essentially economic questions and public policy questions, not scientific questions. I think the science, though there is much more work to be done by the scientists around the, the climate models, but we know the world is warming. We know it's man-made. Uh, we know it's going to have um, a negative effect, um, and we know we need to do something about that. It's then a social choice for us as, as both in Australia, uh, on the nation-state basis, but also... Um, for humanity as to what we do about it. G given that we know all these things and it is a social choice um, and that the Australian Consensus Centre is looking at these social investment questions and questions about food security and about energy, why is climate change not being looked at by the Oh well, it, it 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 probably would be looked at, but the the, the methodology they have is is to it, essentially to um, conduct some survey work to so to go out to um, society to say what do you think are the ten most important sort of social challenges we face? Now, I would have thought climate change is going to be one of those ten. Um, but food security and here in Australia, some people would say immigration and some people would say infrastructure and some would be, say, mental health and, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, not everyone's top ranking would get into a top 10, but that, that's, a, that's where you go out and you say, but let's first of all find out what people consider to be the most important issues. And then you go out to experts in those fields to say, of the various approaches to um, mental health or, or um, youth crime or whatever it may be, what, what's your view, what does the data show as to being the effectiveness of different interventions? Um, and uh, then that produces a sort of, you know, a value of a return on investment. How much benefit does society get for every dollar it spends on something? I mean, to give you an example, um, we currently spend huge amounts of money in Australia uh, putting people in prison. And if you, I, 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 I wouldn't say that this is an area of my expertise at all, but I certainly know that there have been some studies which suggest if we were to spend a chunk of that money First of all, not putting people in prison, but supporting them in the community. And if we put some of that money into into supporting families and communities so that people, particularly younger people, 
don't offend in the first place, that that would, that would be both economically efficient and would produce much better social outcomes. But at present, we're locked into a world where we just end up putting more and more people in prison. And it seems, you know, that's where uh, ultimately it's politicians who have to take those decisions. But an evaluation of the evidence can, sometimes it can open people's eyes mm -hmm. to the fact that there are different and possibly better responses to what seem to be big social challenges. I guess these sorts of cost-benefit analysis assume that um, policy responds in a, a rational way to certain types of evidence. Um, but just to move on, uh, one of the three projects that the Australian Consensus Centre will be working on is the Australian Prosperity Consensus. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, that's, um, um, uh, again, based on going out to uh, ask um, people, what do you think are the most important investments we should make to... to um, create a prosperous future. Um, so um, uh, there will be different different views on that, and those views may vary in different parts of the country and from, from different people. But again, there, this is where you can then go and look at the, the possible policy developments in some of those areas for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And um, you know, some people would say we need to invest much more heavily in... Um, for instance, in, in preschool, um, preschool services, childcare, and so on, because you know the, the, the most important thing we need to do is give every kid a really good start in life, because if you have that foundation, they can then go on to do great things, and so we'll have a more productive and happier population in the future. Others would say we need to invest much more uh, in research. Uh, others would say it's the infrastructure um, that we need to build up in Australia. And, you know, we need high-speed rail between Melbourne and Sydney, or we need to invest much more in our ports or our rail system. Um, and others would say we need to capitalise on the, the, the great um, agricultural resources and potential we have in Australia and, and see the opportunities to develop um, um, the, the, the production of high-quality foodstuff to supply to the growing Asian markets. And that's where a lot of the, the talk around um, support for developing Australia's north, which would be infrastructure, it may be education and infrastructure, and, and um, you know, uh, access to, well, irrigation projects and all sorts of things, um, because there, there are many, many aspects to, to that sort of regional development, possibly tax incentives and, and so on. But so the Australia... Um, prosperity consensus is really designed to focus on those sorts of issues. In the end, governments can't support everything. And in the end, they may not take the decisions that produce, uh, on the, the economist estimates, the highest, highest return on investment. Um, ultimately, those are always going to be political decisions. But at least it helps, I think, if you can say to politicians, that, you know, the best guess, we've been out to lots of people, we've had dozens and dozens of economists working on this. And the best guess is that we can say, if you were to do this, you might get $7 return for every dollar you spend. If you do this, you might get $2 return. Um, that's not saying that you will always, as a politician, go for the $7 and $2, but at least it puts those things um, in, in a comparative view. Uh, and that's often quite difficult to do with any other, uh, in the absence of this sort of method. 
I guess as someone who lives in the northern part of Australia, when I do hear about these sorts of um, analyses of the value of agriculture in a particular region, I you know start to wonder how these sorts of policies can be developed equitably and incorporate the voices and opinions and values of the people who actually live in these areas, given that the research centre is down in Perth. How Do you have an idea of how that will be taken into account? Well, I, I, I think that's a very good question. I think for any, any um, policy that is focused on particular areas or regions, uh, there clearly needs to be engagement with with the people who live there who have, because the people who live anywhere have the greatest stake in anything that's done. Uh, so they, uh, and, and will also have a knowledge base that is much more intimately aware of, of as it were, all the, all the complexity than you would get if you're sitting at a, uh, at a desk in, in Perth or in Canberra or, or in Sydney. So that's really, really important. Um, and, you know, I think the um, whether that's been done in the past uh, on a adequate or sufficient basis, I don't know. But typically, I think that isn't done when it comes to public policy. Well, I mean, just as an example, recently um, we've been told by the state government that there are plans to defund services to small Indigenous communities that have been deemed financially unviable. Um, this decision was made in a top-down way, and it's been criticised for its lack of consultation with the people who would yeah. be affected and for also not properly taking into account social, cultural and environmental benefits of keeping um, communities open and people living out in those areas. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess one of the questions asked me about the prosperity consensus is whether or not looking at indigenous communities and re small remote communities and closing the gap are likely to be addressed in this policy research. Well, I, I think you raise a, 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 a really, really good question uh, about um, how you evaluate um, how you evaluate um, welfare, well-being, a sense of a personal sense of purpose, place, and, and meaning. Because if you just say, uh, um, you know, what is the most efficient, cheapest way to deliver services? that is almost always going to be in a city. So you'd end up saying, okay, let's move everyone from every small community, even mid-sized communities, let's move everyone from, from Broome to Perth, from Albany to Perth, from Esperance to Perth, and every smaller community, because it would then be a lot cheaper to provide schools, fire engines and services, doctors, hospitals, and so on and so forth. But that's not how people choose to live. So you have to take account of the interests of individuals and communities. And, and that's where, where you get into a question of what I would call distributive justice. Um, there may be one view of society which says, well, this will be the most cost-effective thing to do. But cost-effectiveness at a crude level is just really saying this will be in the interest, it's sort of the, the greatest good for the greatest number. So how do you evaluate the interest of people who are in minorities? And in Western Australia, everyone who lives outside of the metropolitan area is in a minority because 80% of people live in Perth. Mm. So clearly you have, to give, you have to give appropriate voice to people who live elsewhere. But does the Copenhagen never, you, method do this? 
Uh, well, yeah, yes, you can certainly you can certainly do that. And but again, what you do, I think, with the method is make the choices explicit. So instead of um, uh, the government or anyone else saying uh, we can't afford to provide services in this place, um, it's too small or it's too remote, you 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 say, okay, well, what's the cost of providing services here? By the way, then let's benchmark to see whether the cost of providing services here is much more or not much more than the cost of providing services elsewhere. I mean, I think we need to remember in Western Australia, we have a lot of very small and remote communities. Um, by no means all of them are indigenous communities, and it's not clear to me that they're all being evaluated in the same way. You know, I think some transparency in terms of that evaluation would be, uh, you know, would be uh, um, is overdue. Um, but you you can undertake that evaluation. Then you can say, okay, what would it cost to bring all services, um, support services in this place up to the standard that you have, say, in the metropolitan area? And you have to recognise that um, that. Uh, Generally, you would say, well, actually, you can't do that in exactly the same way because you can't have a major hospital um, in every small community by definition. So there are going to be some things which have to be supplied remotely or, or on a different basis. But you can nevertheless undertake that sort of work and respect, respect the interests and wishes of people in local communities. A sense of place and a sense of community is is vitally important, and I, I my personal view is that government is here is here to serve the people, and the respectful way in which it can do that is to ask people what they want. And indeed, part of the consensus methodology is to go out and ask people what they want, not tell them what they should have. Paul, how will the centre's research findings affect and feed into state and national policy? Is there a a plan at this um, point in time? No, absolutely no idea, cause, because what tends to happen is, of course, that um, public policy is made often, sometimes transparently, but often behind closed doors. Um, and sometimes the first thing people know about it is when they're being instructed to do something or not to do something um, by government, um, as um, as you pointed out, as has happened to some, um, some remote indigenous communities. Mm. So... Uh, all this can do is provide information, but it can do it transparently and publicly, put it in the public domain, so that if then there are decisions made, uh, at least there's a broad set of information available to, to people who can then say to, um, to our political masters, well, why have you made this decision? It doesn't seem to conform with the, you know, with with uh, the details, with the analysis and so on that has been put before you. Now, there may, as I say, there may be good answers that, that, um, that ministers and politicians can give to that. They say, well, we've taken account of other things. Um, there's geopolitics and there's, there are all sorts of issues that they have to take account of. But at least it promotes the discussion and um, uh, ideally would lead to some better decisions being made. I mean, that's it, in the end, this is um, it, it's all about sort of nudging, I suppose, nudging people towards decisions that will probably give better uh, outcomes rather than poorer outcomes. I guess that's so what you, everybody you, hopes for out of policy to have better oh, outcomes absolutely. rather than worse yeah. outcomes. Yeah. Um, there have been 
assertions that the this fund the funding for this research center is politically motivated what would you say to that uh, well to be honest i i don't know i mean there there it doesn't come um, with any responsibility to follow a government line i mean you know any funding that comes into the university is it comes into the university and then I, I'm, with with most uh, projects and research councils and so on there's a requirement to to ha- to deliver research but it's it remains absolutely for uh, the academics involved to determine um, uh, the the nature of that research and they're not subject to government pressure on that. That's often why researchers get into um, get into trouble with governments uh, from both the left and right because researchers um, don't tell governments what they want to hear. Researchers <laughs> tell governments what the research points to, and there's often a difference between those things. Paul, do you personally feel this is the best way that four million dollars of research funding could be spent? I think uh, now, as long as we're talking about you know, weighing up costs and benefits and value of different items yeah. relative to each other? Um, I, I think getting getting more analysis uh, around how we spend public dollars uh, is a very good thing. Uh, the public, you know, the public budget is, is huge. It's billions and billions of dollars each year. And much of that goes in a in a sense, in a fairly formulaic way to do fairly standard things. Um, and if you can ask questions, then you can uh, you can change things. I mean, let me give an example, which is, is already happening. Um, questions have been posed uh, in relation to our uh, health providers and particularly to hospitals as to why very similar uh, medical or surgical interventions cost very different amounts in different parts of the country, in different states, or even in different cities. And so you you look at the data, you ask the question, and that then gets people to say, well, it costs more here than there because we do things this way than that way. That then begs the question, okay, are the outcomes that you get from this particular intervention a lot better where you're spending a lot more money? And if the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is no, sometimes the answer is yes, but if the answer is no, then that can lead to considerable savings because you can take a different approach and have a different and cheaper approach and have equally good outcomes. That then releases more funds in the healthcare system to treat more people or to to provide better treatment in some other areas. So asking the question around public intervention is always a very, very good thing to do. And if we could, if we could get just 1% uh, of uh, public expenditure um, uh, used in a, in a significantly better way, that would have a really, really big impact on society because public expenditure is just so great. Food for thought. Uh, well, uh, Professor Paul Johnson, you are UWA's Vice-Chancellor. Thank you so much for speaking with Sound Environment today. My pleasure, Kat.